Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Center Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Hello, I'm Thane Stenner, host of the BM Bloomberg Brand Studio Smart Wealth Podcast, where I get to interview monthly pioneers from various industries and hear their wealth creation story lessons that they've learned along the way and tips they wish to share. So not your typical news interview. My goal with the Smart Wealth Podcast is to have an authentic personal conversation with some incredible people who've already accomplished much and have still lots more to do. My special guest today uh, is a fellow named Michael Lee Chin. Michael and I have known each other for about 28, 29 years now can't believe that, uh, Michael, it's been that long. Michael is uh, widely regarded as a visionary entrepreneur whose philosophy of doing good, sorry, doing well and doing good has resulted in extraordinary business success and inspiring philanthropic initiatives. So I'm gonna, just gonna take a few moments now to uh, provide you a little bit more about his bio and background and then we'll start right into the uh, interview. Michael is founder and chairman of Portland Holdings, privately held investment company that manages public equity, private equity, and has ownership interests in a collection of diversified businesses operating globally in sectors, including financial services, insurance, consumer goods, media, tourism, agriculture, real estate development, and targeted radionuclide therapy, which you'll hear a little bit more about later. Michael was born in Port Antonio, Jamaica in 1951. Uh, Michael immigrated to Canada in 1970 to study civil engineering at, at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. After beginning postgraduate studies, Michael's trajectory changed significantly and at the age of 26, he became a financial advisor, quickly progressing to the position of a branch manager. I think the real story kicks in in 1983 at the age of 32. Michael borrowed courageously uh, money to purchase $500,000 worth of McKinsey Financial Corporation stock in 1983. Four years later, the stock had appreciated sevenfold and Michael used the profits to make his first corporate acquisition, a small Ontario-based investment firm called AIC Limited. At the time, Advantage Investment Council, a division of AIC Limited, had assets of, of, uh, under management of just $800,000 back in 1983. Within 20 years, Michael grew AIC from less than 1 million in assets to more than 15 billion uh, in assets under management at its business peak. And in 2009, uh, he sold that particular retail investment business to a leading Canadian financial services group. Among Michael's many personal accomplishments, he's received Doctor of Laws degree from a number of distinguished universities in Canada and Jamaica. He's been profiled in Forbes, Fortune, Canadian Business, Black Enterprise, and Time Magazine, just to name a few. From 2011 to 2016, Michael also held the esteemed position of Chancellor of the Wilfrid Laurier University. Michael is a recipient of the Order of Jamaica and the Order of Ontario and an 
in 2016, he was appointed the chair of the government of Jamaica's Economic Growth Council in an effort to bolster its economic development. So Michael, I just want to give you a very warm welcome and, and thank you once again for taking time uh, out of your busy schedule to be with us today. So, thank you very much for having me, Theme. Well, you know, it's, uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, on, the, on the intro, we've known each other since I think 1993. Um, and you haven't aged a day since then. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and I think uh, I'm more forehead. I'm more forehead. <laughs> well, we both do, for that matter. Yes. But uh, thanks once again for taking the time. Um, and I think you know, just for the listeners, uh, Michael also knew my my uh, father, who was also in the investment business for almost fifty years. So. He, he uh, intergenerationally has known me uh, on, on various fronts. So I'm very pleased to be uh, and honored actually to be doing this interview today. So Michael, let's get started. And we did a prep call yesterday and you, you kind of said, hey, everything's open. Let's, let's have some fun with this and uh, let's you know, share um, some of your amazing story with, uh, with our guests. So, I'll start off with a you know a, a big question right out of the gate, and that's you know in your mind what starts what what has been your defining moment thus far in your life, in your opinion? What has been my defining moment so far. thus far? Well, when I first started in the financial services business, I mm -hmm. uh, I was selling mutual fund funds for investors syndicate. <laughs> this is uh, the, the, today. It's investors group, and that's where I met Mr. Gord Stenner. Uh, so Mr. Stenner actually was the number one advisor at investors, and my goal as a as a newbie was to aspire to be like Mr. Stenner. Mm. So, what has been my defining moment? Well. I left investors a year and a half later, or sorry, when I, at 26, I started in the business at 26 years old. And as an immigrant, I knew no one with money, but I had to sell investments. Mm. So I had to cold call, knock on doors. And when someone would say, okay, Mike, you can come and see me at my home, come 7 p.m. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll hear what you have to say. Just before going, into just before ringing the bell to go sit around the kitchen table, I'd ask myself, I felt such a debt of gratitude that the, the, this family would be inviting me into their home to, to have, have me advise them on the second most important thing in their life, their wealth. I felt such a gratitude that they would be so gracious. So I'd ask myself the question, what is the highest value add I can give to this family here tonight? That was the question. And the answer kept coming back to me, Mike, make them wealthy. That's the highest value add any financial advisor can give to his or her client, make them wealthy. So I thought, oh, if that is the case, is, is not, remember this now back in 1977, we didn't have Google then, so we couldn't Google it, but today, even if you Google it, nothing comes up with a bunch of books. Mm. So I had to figure it out. I had to figure it out. 
And it's, I guess it's the engineering in me. Whenever I have a question that I need an answer to, I go through a protocol, a format. It goes like this. Firstly, I observe. Secondly, I create a hypothesis from my observations. Thirdly, I test it, I stress test it. If it holds true, I codify it. And then lastly, I hardwire it so it becomes who I am and what I do. Hmm. So in this case, the question was, is there, is there a formula that if you practice consistently, the only outcome is wealth? So if there's if there such a formula, I wanted to know what that formula is because I'm going to live it and be the role model for it. Hmm. So I went through my protocol, I observed. And what I wanted to do was to see if there were, there, there were some common threads that connected all the wealthy people in the world. That's what I wanted to do. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so people who created wealth, not inherited it, not got mar not married into it, uh, not, not steal it, not win it, but people who created it. Hmm. So by, this was back in 1977. So by 1978, I figured it out. Hmm. Every wealthy person, and you just think about a wealthy person thing, any, every, who created it, every wealthy person did five things to have created the wealth. Number one, he or she owned a few, not too many, high quality businesses, number one. Number two, he or she really understands those few businesses. That word understand is key to investing. Number three, he or she made sure that those few businesses that he or she understands are domiciled in strong long-term growth industries. Number four, he or she, that person you're thinking of who created wealth, number four, that person has used other people's money prudently. And number five, that person's time frame for ownership is undefined. He or she will own the business for as long as it remains a great business and the industry remains a great long-term growth industry. So that's what I observed back in 1978, those five things. I have now codified it into the five laws of wealth creation. And I've lived it since 1978 eight when I discovered it. Mm. So everything I do, it's not, my life is now simple. If you came to me with an investment thing, I'm going to say, hold on thing. Let me, let me pull out my list of five. Number one, two, three, four. And if it passes, yes, then we can talk. Yeah. Right? So it codifies, it's a framework that I've lived by. And when you keep do, repeating the same principles over and over, you get the benefit of compounding. Yes. You don't have to, you're not switching every day. You get the benefit of compounding. And as we all know, the compound growth curve is like, is like is the hockey stick curve, right? Yes. Uh, so you, you can't create wealth unless you compound. Mm. And you can only compound by doing the same things over and over and over and over. Eventually you get that inflection, inflection point and then you start, you start going up the, the, the gradient of the curve. Sounds so that, that's the most, yeah. that I would say is the most, was the most pivotal discovery point in my life because it was the foundation for everything. Hmm. It sounds like uh, you share a lot of the same principles and tenets as Warren Buffett. Would you agree with that? 
100%. So from 1982, I've been an acolyte of Mr. Buffett. And in life, if you are fortunate enough to identify your hero early enough, it's a great thing. Mm. So what we should be doing to our, what we should be advising our children is look, identify a hero and emulate. Mm. Very well said, very well said. So along the way, I mean, you clearly have had many, many successes in your life. What would you say some of the challenges have been that you've learned the most from along the way? The challenge, the, the challenges, the challenge would be, in fact, uh, when Warren Buffett was asked, Mr. Buffett, how come you're so success, successful? You start with zero and you're in the top five wealthiest individuals in the world. And you didn't discover anything. You have discovered nothing. <laughs> yes. you, 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 you invested in other people's businesses. That's what you do. So how come you're so successful? He said a couple of things. The first, what most important uh, uh, answer he gave was the following. To be successful in the long run doesn't require a stratospheric IQ. Whew. Thank God for that. <laughs> Unusual business insight or any particular inside information. You don't need any of that. What's needed is a sound intellectual framework for making decisions. And secondly, the ability to prevent your emotions from corroding your framework. Mm. So what, he, what Mr. Buffett basically said is, look, investors, people who want to create wealth, there are two things we need. We need to make decisions based on a solid framework. In my case, the five laws of wealth creation. Mm -hmm. And secondly, we need to be able to control our emotions. So, and, and we can only do that by having a framework that is absolute. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change every day. Mm -hmm. Frameworks are principles. They don't change. And whenever you are given, a, whenever a question arises, all you need to do is basically pass the question through the framework and the answer will come back to you. You see, our problem as humans is we're apt to be emotional. We're apt to be emotional. And we need a mechanism by which we can control our emotions. Mm. So for instance, in good times, you're apt to behave in a certain way. In bad times, when posed with the same question, you're apt to behave in a different way that doesn't make any sense, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So the only way to have consistency of behavior, to keep your emotions in check, is to have your, your framework, your religion. You don't violate it. It's absolute. Yes. So, so the, the question, the answer is, uh, the thing what I've learned most over the years is control of emotions, which is a function of being having principles, a value system that is absolute. It's like your religion. You will not violate it. Excellent. And even, even when you're so steeped, it's very difficult. Mr. Buffett once said also, what I do is simple, not easy. <laughs> not easy to, to remain consistent with your framework. Not easy. Very, but that's the, that's the goal. Very true. So on a personal question, Michael, um, my condolences to you on the recent passing of your mother. Thank you very we much. Had, uh, and, and I had a brother recently passed away as well. The, um, what, would, what 
sort of impact would you say she had on you as a young man growing up? Where, where I'm going with this question is, what drives Michael Lee Chin? Okay, so my mother, uh, she, she was an orphan. She, uh, she, she, uh, she had me when she was eight, 18 years old. And when she had me, it, back in 1951, it, she, was, it, she was an outcast because she got pregnant. And she was, she was kicked out from the job that she had. So for the first six months of my life, we were taken in by the helpers, the maids of the local supermarket for the first six months of my life. They took care of us. Mm. At, at, the, at that point in time, that in that era, young Jamaican women, the natural trajectory for them was to emigrate, leave, leave their child at home with grandma uh, and emigrate to England to do nursing and uh, send money back home to support the child. My mom said, no way. I am not going anywhere. I am going to take care of my mic. So her absolute commitment to family. Number, number two, she had high standards of herself. And uh, by, uh, by virtue of the fact that I was her, her son of me. And she lived her standards. She, had high, she was a high values person. And she led by example. Mm. She did not let uh, short-termism dictate her behavior. Mm. So she, I was fortunate that I had, I remember I said, if we're lucky in life, uh, uh, we, we would have to, we, 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 to, be, to be successful in life, you have to choose your heroes early. Well, I got lucky because I, my, I didn't choose my hero. I was born to my hero. Mm. And that's it. That's I, I re recognize the the uh, the drive, the entrepreneurialism, the responsi responsibleness, responsibility that she takes has taken on, the acquisitiveness that she has, she her leading by example. I had it right my, in my mom, mm. and I didn't want to disappoint her. Oh yeah. So that she now that she's gone, that the, her her memories, her her attitude, her values remain with me and I don't want to disappoint my mom. <laughs> well said, Michael. So let's pause there for a quick break uh, and then we'll get into the second segment of this interview. Uh, so uh, thank you, Michael, so far and we'll, we'll be right back shortly. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Center Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm with uh, Michael Lee Chin, a special guest uh, uh, here for us for the Smart Wealth Podcast. And uh, we're going to get into some, uh, you know, additional questions around investments and kind of how he thinks about investments. So, you know, today, well, one of the questions I've asked of prior guests is, you know, if you had $10 million to invest today, how would you allocate it? But I think, Michael, what I'll, what I'll, I'll modify the question. If you had $100 million to invest today, how would you be allocating it today and why? Uh, as Michael Leachin or as... Michael Lee, uh, as Michael Leachin. Okay. Uh, I would firstly 
look at exactly what my existing portfolio, this is a hundred million incremental. Yes. Right. I would look at my existing portfolio and basically let, let's talk about a portfolio framework. Let's talk about that, sure. a, port, a portfolio framework. Because most of us, we are sold by the securities industry uh, and the securities industry sells liquidity. That's what the security industry sells. Mm. You must be liquid. Mm. But you think about it. Are wealthy people liquid? Are wealthy people liquid? Chances are not. Mm -hmm. That's right, because they, right? they have businesses typically that are illiquid. They have businesses, exactly. So you see, liquidity is, is something that we have, to be, we have to be mindful of. And what pension funds do is they, they, they look towards, they, they, they store liquidity in cash, in publicly traded uh, stocks, publicly created fixed income. That's where they store liquidity. To get growth, they look to the ownership of private equity funds. They look to the ownership of venture capital funds. They look to the ownership of infrastructure, natural resources, uh, and direct ownership of businesses to get growth. All of those uh, assets uh, are illiquid. So the reason they do that is, so is because growth there's when you get like when you buy liquidity you're paying a premium for liquidity mm -hmm. it's and the, the converse is true when you buy when you buy an asset that is not liquid you're getting a liquidity an illiquidity discount mm -hmm. right yes. so if you don't need if you don't need liquidity why pay a premium for it mm. Right? right? So therefore, for those of us whose portfolio is 100% liquid, we should really reconsider what it is we're doing because we're paying, we're paying a heavy premium that over time will, 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 will lead to uh, a lesser compounding. Hmm. So what would I, an, an extra 100 million, what I would do, I would firstly look at my liquidity needs, right? Yeah. Over the next one year, three year, five years. Then I would I would assess uh, what, how much money will I need to for liquidity. Then the rest I will will would allocate in the areas I just mentioned, the non-liquid areas, yeah. to take advantage of the illiquidity discount. Mm. With the and the the the, up, the inverse of the illiquidity discount is a return premium mm -hmm. because if you buy buy an asset for at a discount, you're actually going to get uh, a pre, you, you get a return premium versus buying it at a, a premium. You're gonna get <laughs> a, a truncated rate of return. Exactly. So, so one of your most recent private investments, I wouldn't mind you speaking to, uh, ITM. Mm -hmm. Maybe discuss that uh, as within the framework you just discussed as to why you're investing in that. So I will I will discuss I won't call the name okay uh, because uh, it's it's going through a fundraising period as I won't call the name sure but I'll just I'll just explain to you uh, my, how I how I uh, how I eventually get to finding investments mm -hmm. and this one came uh, this one came 
actually with a friend of mine uh, has prostate cancer. And this friend of mine, when you have prostate cancer, the, the uh, treatment protocol that you go through would include, and the escalating protocol you'd go through would, number one, you, you would get a prostatectomy, a removal of your prostate. If your PSA level is still high after the removal of your pros prostate, it means the cancer is still there. Mm -hmm. And you'll get, therefore, the, the, the next level would be radiation. And radiation, traditional external beam radiation, that's really blind. They're just radiating an area, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If your PSA level is still high thereafter, they infuse your entire body with chemotherapy or androgen deprivation therapy mm -hmm. or both. Mm -hmm. Radiation, as we know, is very, it, it, it fries your body. Brutal. Chemotherapy, as we know, poisons your body. So both are blunt instruments. Mm. So my friend now has prostate cancer uh, and he, he had a prostatectomy and his PSA level was still high. Mm. So the doctor said, you need to have radiation therapy, which he did. He, thereafter, his PSA level was still high. So what it meant is a, uh, the, 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 the cancer had metastasized elsewhere in his body. But it, elsewhere, no one knows where that is. Mm. So then, then I said, your next form of treatment is we'll have to flood your body because we, don't, we can't see it. We don't know where it is. So it's going to flood your body with chemotherapy and uh, hopefully that will work. He said, no, I, I, I refuse to take chemotherapy. Luckily, he came across, a friend of his said to him, there is an option in Germany. And the option is called PRRT, which stands for Peptide Receptor Radionuclide Therapy. So what is PRRT? I'll get, I'll get to that. But my friend went to Germany and he went to one Dr. Richard Baum, who has been practicing PRRT for the past 20 years. Uh, so when he got, so the PRRT, what it is, is the following, the treatment, the, the, the treatment is as, as follows. Certain cancerous cells, they have a receptor on them. And what they do is find a protein that is attracted to that particular receptor. And once they've found that, they know that they, they, uh, they know they can get to the cells and only those cancerous cells. Mm. Once they, they can match a protein with the receptor. So what they now do is attach to the uh, protein molecule and a radioisotope by the name of gallium-68. And the, 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 the protein molecule takes the gallium-68 to the receptor on the cancerous cells. The gallium-68 now can be, can, will light up a, pen, a PET scan. Mm. So we can see exactly where the cancerous cells are anywhere they are in your body. So once we can see it, it's proof perfect that the receptor is there. Mm. So what we know, what they now do is substitute the gallium 68 and attach another radioisotope by the name of lutetium 177 to the peptide molecule or protein molecule, which takes the lutetium to the infected cells and only the infected cells and the lutetium emits beta rays, which are two millimeters in length. 
beta rays zaps the cancer cells only mm. anywhere they are in your body mm. and leave adjacent healthy cells alone mm. so you don't get the uh, side effects mm. so now so that's the, the, that's the mechanism uh, that's how it works so now he went to germany my friend went to germany to see mr dr baum when he got there uh, he immediately before seeing dr baum he met this gentleman from america who had 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 cancer uh, prostate cancer 20 years prior this was back in 19 2018 so he met this american gentleman who had had prostate cancer 20 years prior mm. and he went to his went to johns hopkins eventually he had all the escalating protocols finally he went to john johns hopkins and they said look the cancer came back there's no nothing else we can do you have had prostatectomy radiation chemotherapy you're now in the state nothing more we can do mm. but there's this guy in germany his name is richard baum you can go and see him you have nothing to lose so he went to dr baum when he got there his psa level was 2000 normal is less than three his was 2000 the cancer was had metastasized to his brains his bones and his lungs after treatment by dr baum the, his psa level when he went back to he went back to johns hopkins they tested him and they were they were just uh they couldn't believe what they saw no more cancer in his brain no more cancer in his lungs no more cancer in his bones and his psa level went from 2000 to 0 0.6 so i said my friend's name name is richard i said richard when you see dr baum tomorrow ask him two questions for me firstly whether this uh treatment is applicable to colon cancer because my mother has colon cancer and secondly whether or not he'll allow me to start an offshoot clinic of his in jamaica because this treatment is not available in north america so the next day he called me and said i spoke to dr baum and doctor this is now april of 2018 mm -hmm. dr baum said he's coming to uh do, deliver the keynote address at a radio nuclide conference in philadelphia in june of 2018 and i can come and meet him so june i may, i went down to meet him and we had a great conversation and he introduced me to this gentleman by the name of oliver buck who supplies him the german gentleman who supplies him with lutetium 177. so oliver we had a great conversation oliver said my next time you come to germany come and see me so i said of coincidentally i'm coming in two weeks so i went in two weeks when i within half an hour of landing in munich i found myself on the campus of the technical university of munich within half an hour of that i found myself in the heart of the bavarian government high flux nuclear reactor showing me how lutetium is made so when i went back to when thereafter we went to oliver's office and he explained to me the business and i said oliver i'd like to invest in this company so he said mike the company is profitable. We don't need, it doesn't need any capital right now. But in the last two weeks since I met you, I explained to the, my board about who you are, what you've done, 
And they, the, my board has asked me to ask you if you would become a board member of this company. So I said, I will do it on condition that you find me some shares. <laughs> Excellent. So, so, so two weeks later, he came back and said, he found some shares from shareholders, 5% uh, of the company. Uh, so I, I became a shareholder. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, I, I'm looking forward to hearing how that uh, corporate story plays out because it sounds like it potentially could be a, a world uh, changing type of technology. Um, so, wait, wait, excuse me, excuse me, see. Yes. Uh, it's not potential. This was in 2018. It's now 2022. Yep. It's now three and a half years ago. Yep. So far, sir, uh, there, the FDA has approved this modality of treatment for prostate cancer. And now uh, you, you have a whole menu of different types of cancer that are being, that are going through the approval process. Hmm. So we, this methodology is actually disrupting traditional beam, traditional external beam radiation and disrupting chemotherapy. Wow. And uh, so this is, uh, this will be become the uh, default way of treating cancer eventually. Wow, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, more about this. Uh, so to date, Michael, what would you say has been your very best investment and your very worst investment? My very best investment was buying the National Commercial Bank of Jamaica in 2002. Mm. And why was it? Why is it my best investment? Because I'm driven by uh, what we have codified uh, to be our, it's my personal mantra, and hence you know, my corporate mantra, which is prosperitas cum caritate, which is doing well while doing good. Mm. Right? Mm. Prosperitas cum caritate. Mm. Uh, you can't, uh, and on a personal note, in this in in the search for what gives me fulfillment, I that's why I I codified prosperitas cum caritate, doing well while doing good. Mm. In other words, you cannot. It, it doesn't make sense just create, creating a lot of wealth if you're not using the wealth to uh, uplift those who are around you, your community, your province your country, the world. That's the good, doing good part. That's where you get the fulfillment from. Making money, that's one thing, mm. but that really doesn't give you fulfillment. Mm. Fulfillment come from using the wealth in a way to uplift others. Mm. That's where the full, so NCB therefore was an opportunity to, to uh, have to bestow that philosophy on a financial services business. Hmm. And it has, by, by virtue of what NCB has done and how much NCB has contributed to the Jamaican society and the Caribbean society, uh, because of that philosophy, uh, that I would say uh, is my, my best investment because it, it, I had a, a, a canvas that I could uh, paint what a, a good corporate citizen should look like. One that does well and do good for society. Hmm. Well said. So what about your worst investment? 
My worst investment was in 2014 when I decided to leverage into oil stocks. <laughs> that was my worst investment. And you know, I, I kick myself every day for doing that because for decades, I said, commodity businesses are the worst possible businesses to get in to, to own. Yeah. Why? Because you could be running a great oil company or a great rice company or a great uh, wheat company. And if there's a discovery of oil in Timbuktu, the price of oil goes down and your business is toast. Yes. Nothing to do with how well you've run your business yeah. because commodities are a function. They, the only differentiable, the, the reason why people buy one commodity, sorry, if you're in the commodity business, the only reason why uh, anyone will buy your commodity is because it's of price. It's a cheap, least expensive. Yeah. So that's a bad business when price is the determinant for why a consumer would like to buy. Mm. So I made it, the, the, for years, I would avoid commodities. Mm. And then I capitulated when oil price was 100 in 2014. And because I thought these dividends are consistent and the dividends were 7% and I could borrow at 1%. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the dividends would pay more than pay for the, for, for the carrying costs. Yes. Yes. Little did I know that <laughs> the oil was about to go to minus, minus. <laughs> Absolutely remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Well, listen, let's pause there for a moment, Michael, and we'll go into our final and third segment. So everybody st stick around. We're going to finish off really strong with Michael Leach in. So just a, a few moments, please. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Center Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Michael Lee Chin, and uh, we're in the third segment of this uh, excellent interview um, that I'm having the privilege of uh, conducting with Michael. So, Michael, three last questions, and they're going to be quite diverse in nature. Here we are, March 8th, 2022, and uh, we have a very uh, prominent news headline today with uh, what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine. Can you maybe provide some of your thoughts on how to view that scenario in relation to one's own investments currently? Oh, okay. Certainly, it is a tragic, a human tragedy that one person uh, who uh, is so deranged uh, can really be affecting uh, millions of people directly. And uh, the, 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 the collateral damage is spreading throughout the world. It's unfortunate. And I, my heart goes out, goes out for the Ukrainian people. In terms of from an economic standpoint, uh, over prior to this invasion, uh, uh, inflation was building prior to this invasion. The stock market, the stock market was unhinged in terms of it had no reflection as to the value of the businesses. It was just totally unhinged mm. prior to the invasion. Uh, the invasion will certainly uh, accelerate inflation. It will certainly accelerate inflation uh, uh, throughout the economy. Uh, so 
the, 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 the mar market's valuations are vulnerable to, to, uh, to be pricked. Mm. And it, I, I actually, we are now seeing it. We're now seeing it. Yes. I have been wrong because for the, I was expecting that these lofty valuations would have come back to, uh, re, would have regressed in the norm. I, and I've been uh, expecting this for the last two years. So I've been wrong for two years, but I, I would not uh, invest in, in a business that has a valuation that was, didn't make sense from a businessman's standpoint. Mm. You see, Mr. Buffett once said another thing that, I, that remains with me. When he was asked, how come you're so, such a good capital allocator? He said, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman. And secondly, I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor. So business people don't buy, when they're buying a business, they don't buy it for any price. So that is the, as a, as a capital allocator, which we all are, if we're investing, mm -hmm. we have to think like a business person, valuation is important. Mm -hmm. we are, so you look at some of these businesses and the valuations were just insane. Mm -hmm. So no rational business person on a private basis would pay those, those prices. Mm. So we have to, to tether our decision-making decision process to include valuation. So the, the, the ripple effect of the Russians' uh, invasion is that uh, uh, valuation is coming back more to no, some normalcy. Hmm. And, and hence, and hence, there's another uh, invocation that we should be conscious of. The Chinese definition of the word crisis has two component parts, mm -hmm. danger plus opportunity. So whenever there's a crisis, most of us, how do we feel? We feel upset, we get emotional, and we get paralyzed, mm -hmm. and we do nothing. Mm -hmm. But because we're focusing on the first component part of the word crisis, the danger component, and we're being emotional. Mm -hmm. But there's a second component part, which is opportunity. You cannot have an opportunity unless there's a crisis. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the crisis, the bigger the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I would say, uh, saying, that we are now coming to, the valuations are coming back to normalcy and there will be some, a great opportunity because the pendulum, unfortunately, never swings, never stops in the middle. It always swings to extremes. Mm -hmm. We're going from extreme valuation. It won't stop at what is reasonable. It will also go to the extreme negative, right? And, when, and so we as investors, we should be disciplined enough to minimize, to try to uh, have our fear not to paralyze us and focus on the opportunities that will be presented over the next six months. Mm. Well said. So pivoting to personal legacy and family, uh, what would you say uh, are the things that you hope, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now when uh, Michael Lee Chin is not here. What is it that you hope that your, your kids and your grandkids know of you or think of you? Well, the first, the first as a parent, I, ha I had to define 
what is my responsibility to my kids? And my, res my responsibility basically is to make them strong and independent. Strong and independent. So I try to do everything to make them strong and independent. And as a person with some modicum of wealth, it's more difficult because they grew up not having to strive and not having the fear that you, you have when you have nothing. Mm. And in life, you cannot achieve uh, anything extraordinary unless there are two emotions present, fear and excitement. Yes. But we as a society, and they have to be present together. Yes. But we as, a, we as it's natural force to try to do everything possible to avoid fear. And then there's, a, therefore you have excitement left. But when, you're too, when you have only excitement, you become giddy and you make silly decisions, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there has to be a healthy dose of fear and excitement. Yeah. So my responsibility as a parent is to make my children strong and independent. I realize it is much more difficult when you're wealthy to do so because of what your children see around you, uh, what they, 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 uh, they, they, their need to be, uh, they're, they're less fearful than say I was. Mm. So, so I'm always thinking, how can I make sure that they stay grounded? They have some, they put themselves in a, in a situation where there's fear and also excitement. Mm. Uh, because you, you, know, you know, it's difficult growing kids up normally. Yeah. It's more difficult growing them up when they're surrounded by wealth and trappings. Mm. Very well said. So, so, so I'd like for them, and you can only, you can, one can only, the antidote to that really is for them to say, well, one moment, my dad could have, my dad, my great that granddad, my great granddad could have retired when he was 35. He was wealthy at 35, but he didn't. Why? Because he wanted to set an example to us. He didn't want to, for us to see him waking up every morning with no fear, nor excitement in his life just reading the newspaper, playing golf, or just some, uh, etc. Mm. He led by example, and he was motivated, was passionate. He remained hungry, although he didn't need to be hungry. Mm -hmm. Again, very well said. So what would you say today is the activity that you're most excited about? That gives you the most energy? When you get up out of bed each morning, what's the one thing that if you're doing that day is giving you the most pleasure today? You see, I look at my life as a, in a, in a long-term perspective. And remember that I mentioned early, one cannot be successful unless one think about compounding, mm. right? It's like the hockey stick curve, mm -hmm. right? You work, you work, you work for many years, many decades, you're going actually along the handle of the hockey, hockey stick. Yes. Then, you, then you start going up the curve right at the, the inflection point. Yes. From the time you started working to that inflection point, you put out a lot of energy and you get a disproportionately low amount of return. Mm. And most people give up. Mm. But once you pass that inflection point, it reverses. You're not going up the gradient of the curve. Mm. And you put out a little bit of energy, effort, and you get a disproportionately high amount of return. Because at that point, your reputation is strong. Your, your, your experiences 
is the most it has ever been. But what, what do most people do? They retire at that point. Yeah. So my excitement is I have gone through the phase, the hockey, the handle of the hockey stick curve. I've now gotten past the inflection point and I am excited to know what's around the corner. Mm, very, very good. So last, last question for you, Michael, and you've been very gracious with your time. You've, you've uh, been phenomenally successful as a businessman and as, a, as a, an investor. Um, you've also been a very significant philanthropist. You've done a lot of things charitable. So what's near and dear to your heart from a point of view of the charitable impact you're wanting to make over the, the course of the remaining uh, portion of your life and into the next generation? Uh, well, you, you know, I said, uh, perspective I have is the following. In, nine, in 2002, when I was just about, in March of 2002, which is now 20 years ago, yes. when I bought the National Commercial Bank, that day, I was sitting at the office of the Minister of Finance to write the check to buy the National Commercial Bank of Jamaica. And my parents were there, my mom, my dad, and eight siblings. And just before writing the check, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, how is this possible for the son of an orphan who, who was a clerk in a supermarket to now be writing a check to buy the National Commercial Bank of Jamaica? How is that possible? And it came to me. Three answers came to me. Mike, it's possible for many factors. I'm going to name three that you had nothing to do with, <laughs> Mike. Number one. You were born in a country that made you a confident person. In my case, I was born in Jamaica. And I felt being brought up in Jamaica, I felt I could be anybody. Mike, you didn't choose your country. You were blessed to have been born in that one. You could have been born in many other countries that immediately your confidence would be truncate, truncated. Think about young children in Russia, in Ukraine today. Mm -hmm. I didn't choose my country. I was blessed to have been born in that one that made me a confident person. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you're born to a mother who had high values, who led by example, and she had high expectations of you. You didn't choose your mother. You're blessed to have, been, to have gotten that one. There are many children who were born January the 1st, 3rd, 1951, were born to parents who had no values, no standard, no expectations. I was fortunate not to have been born to one of those. I was born to one who, had, who lived her life in a, in a high values way. I didn't choose her. And thirdly, Mike, I was blessed to have had that mother. And thirdly, you're born in an era in which you can own a pencil. You can be educated. Had you been born 250 years ago, you would have been old. You couldn't have gotten an education. You'd have been a slave. Mm. You didn't choose the era in which you were born, Mike. Mm. You're blessed. So I was blessed. I didn't choose my country, my mother, nor the era. I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with these blessings? Am I just going to show them all on myself? Or am I going to show some on myself and use the rest? to uplift those people in the world who were born in, uh, in, in countries 
that truncated their confidence. To use some of my wealth to uplift those children who were born to parents who didn't give them, uh, who, had, who had no, no values and they're wayward, mm. not any fault of theirs, mm. right? Correct. And thirdly, what I use some of my wealth to help those who were born in countries that immediately truncated their future. It's not their choice. So mm. it's that realization at that moment when I was just about to write the check that I had, my success has many is a function of many things that I had nothing to do with. I was inordinately, inordinately blessed. And I am a statistical improbability. And I don't forget that. Mm. Well, you know, I've known you 29 years, Michael. And one of the things that I find amazing about you is you have this balance of passion and drive and stamina to you and clear thinking, but your humility, it, to have humility blended with that uh, is also quite remarkable. Um, I think it's disarming to some people, probably, uh, how, how you present that. But I, I just uh, wanted to you know, wrap up this interview by saying it's been an absolute pleasure kind of interviewing Michael. And uh, I appreciate your time. I, and on behalf of all the listeners uh, that we'll have here when this uh, podcast is released, um, there's a lot of good insights here. And uh, I appreciate you sharing because it's not, it's not always easy sharing kind of insights like this. So thank you. Uh, thank you once again, and uh, blessings to you, my friend. My pleasure, Thane. Blessings to you also, you and your family, Thane. Thank you. And condolences to the loss of your brother. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. That was Michael Lee Chin, a businessman and philanthropist and the chairman and CEO of Portland Holdings, Inc. On our next episode, I chat with John Bromley, the founder of Charitable Impact, whose mission is to nurture generosity within each person and bring the resources for creating change to the, in the world to everyone. Stay tuned for that. I'm Thane Stenner, and thanks for listening to Smart Wealth Podcast. The comments expressed in this podcast are the results of work done by Stenner Wealth Partners. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity Corp. and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or general needs of any particular person, organization, or institution. Can Accord is a member of the CIPF.